to that familiar text that you've heard even at secular weddings, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we'll be this morning. People argue about a lot of things. They argue about what kind of uh, job is the best kind of job to have. They argue about who is the greatest about something. I mean, you can listen to sports radio all day long and hear them argue about who's the best ever at whatever position. Sometimes there's even arguments over who's the greatest servant of God. You know, was it Mother Teresa or Michelangelo? Was it a Sunday school teacher that you had growing up? Or, or is, it, uh, is it a preacher that is on TV and preaches the word to millions? Even if we could figure out, you know, what is the greatest or who is the greatest, what criteria would we even use to answer the debate? Well, um, the queen of rock and roll helps us this morning, Tina Turner. She died earlier this year, but she famously sang the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? And that's both the title of my sermon, and it's also the, the question that when we grapple with it, helps us to know whether or not anything is truly valuable. What's love got to do with it? Well, before we dive right in, let me set a little context. In this book, 1 Corinthians, we're pretty deep into the book at this point, right? It's 16 chapters long. We're in 13. We've, we've spent some time here. And as we've walked through the book, we've noticed that Paul has been systematically moving from one issue to the next, issues that the Corinthian church was struggling with, things that they were doing badly. They were failing to think and act as spiritual people. That's why I entitled this series the the call to be spiritual. They were behaving worldly in certain situations. They were behaving foolishly, selfishly. Some in the church had written to Paul hoping he would provide instruction and and write the ship rebuking the church where necessary. The Corinthians had been divisive, arrogant, failing to include the poor to care for them, and, and looking the other way at gross sexual immorality. Just to remind you of a few things that we've already read about in this book. And we could go on and on. There's lots more I didn't mention. Suffice it to say that the church at Corinth was a mess. But how could it be? How could it be in light of something Paul says at the beginning of the book? Um, If you flip back just a few pages to chapter 1 and verses 4 through 7. Get back over there for a minute. We're just going to be there for a second. I want your eyeballs to fall on these words. Soak it up so that this question I'm asking, how could the church be a mess? really sort of has its force here that we will uh, look at in this chapter. So verses, verse, or rather, chapter 1, verse 4 begins like this. Familiar words. Paul uses this sort of um, 
phrasing in a lot of his letters. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. But look what he adds here. His thankfulness for the grace of Jesus coming to him this way. So that in every way, so that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Drop down to verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had everything. Did you see that? They were enriched in every way in Jesus. In, in all speech, in all knowledge. They weren't lacking in any spiritual gift. They had all that was required for them to serve Jesus well. So, if they had everything, why was the church such a mess? Why were they so troubled? When Paul rebuked the church for resorting to the law courts in chapter 6, they'd, they'd been suing each other to, to resolve their differences in secular courts. He asked this question. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 5 now. I say this to your shame, he starts off. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? They had all they needed. They were lacking in nothing. And yet they were behaving as if they didn't have all the spiritual gifts that were necessary. To live faithfully for Jesus. If they had everything, I repeat, why was the church so troubled? Friends, it's because they had failed to grab hold of the way that Jesus had called them to live. They had failed to see a more excellent way, to use the, the language of the final verse of the last chapter. They had failed to see this more excellent way in pursuing the wondrous gifts the Spirit had given them. Forget, don't forget that though this chapter is ripped out of its context and read at weddings, it falls in the middle of a long conversation, a long argument on the proper way to view and use spiritual gifts. It starts in chapter 12 and ends in 14, and we're right smack dab in the middle. Last week, we saw that these diverse gifts the Spirit had lavishly supplied the Corinthians with brought unity only if they had a shared ambition. I don't know if you remember that. That was the last point of last sermon. That ambition, or to say it the, the, this other way, the more excellent way, that ambition is to love as Christ loves as you employ your gifts. To do all for the common good, to pour yourselves out, to use all that the Spirit of Christ has given you for the good of others rather than yourselves. This is what the Corinthians had failed to do, and, and perhaps we failed to do. What's love got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. It has everything to do with how to live in a way that blesses and encourages and builds people up. Let, let's look at today's text that provides us with such helpful instruction and encouragement on this point. Because, boy, we need to learn this lesson. Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll read the entire chapter. Kids, if you have, kids, listen closely. 
This is God's word. He speaks to his people through this. So be real quiet. Listen very carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 reads like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The theme I hope to convince you of from these 13 verses is this. Love is everything in this life and the life to come. Love is everything in this life and in the life to come. To see this, you have to understand some things about love. And I believe that's what Paul is doing here in three pieces, calling us to understand these three things about love. The first one is this. What's love in the first place? What, what is love all about? What does it look like? What is love? That's the first thing we have to understand. Secondly, we have to understand the fact that love is essential. We have to know what it is, and we have to know that it's essential. And then finally, we have to, we have to understand that love is eternal. It never ends. So we have to, we have to look at this text in, in that way. We're going to start in the middle piece, then go to the front, and then the back. So that middle part is, what is love? We'll look at that. Then we'll move to the, to the first verses. And, and ask the, or, or seek to understand the fact that love is essential, and then finally that love is eternal. So first, you see that love is everything when you understand what it is. You see that love is, we get to this point. We see that love is everything when we understand what it is in the first place. We see that in verses 4 through 7. It's, as I said, the middle of our text. Here, Paul writes some of the most beautiful words in the Scriptures. I mean, we can all attest. I read one commentator that said something like, when anybody teaches on this, on this text or, or writes on it or you know, you know, drafts a commentary or something like that, preaches on this text, 
everyone walks away with the idea that dirty fingerprints are on this beautiful page. Because it's so lovely, right? And, and it's so hard to, to get our minds around exactly what's going on, the, the exalted nature of love. But it's here, it's profitable for us, God's preserved it for us, so let's take our best swing. As I said, the, the words are so beautiful, they're, they're read at weddings. I have read these words at friends' weddings uh, several times. And the words certainly have great benefit for all who hear them and understand their profound significance in, in various relationships, relationships of all kinds, certainly in a, a marriage relationship, but these words are also beneficial in friendships, in work relationships, and of course in the church, which is Paul's primary concern here, particularly in the way the church uses their spiritual gifts. In doing so, Paul gives instruction to a church that was, in a lot of ways, without love. As the Corinthians approached following leaders, deciding you know, which leader they should line up behind, and how they approached Christian liberty, and yes, judging spiritual gifts, they had done so not on the basis of love, which is why this letter is so corrective. Love is everything in this life and the life to come. And Paul here holds out the way of love for the church to see and embrace and line themselves up behind. Now, while, while Paul's explanation uh, of love here is not exhaustive, certainly, it does appear to have been written with the Corinthian situation in mind, showing them that spiritual maturity is not seen in having some miraculous spiritual gift, but in exercising gifts out of a profound love of God and each other. The apostle provides an, ex an exquisite definition of love, really, weaving in the, the presence of, of positive actions for the benefit of others, and also uh, talking about the absence of negative actions towards oneself. Notice how it begins in verse 4 there. Love is patient and kind. You know, biblical love is informed by the frailty of those who live under the effects of sin. Biblical love is informed by the frailty of those who live under the effects of sin, which is all of us. Everyone in the church is lacking. None have perfect faith. All doubt God's wisdom at times. All exhibit laziness, both physically and spiritually from time to time. All need to be reminded of truth, of God's goodness, of the, uh, of the faith benefits of going through trials. All of us are like this. All of us are frail. And so those who love others are patient with their friends who are frail like them. All who love others truly, see the weaknesses of their brothers and sisters in light of their own weaknesses. And so that engenders patience towards one another. And while they lovingly endure the frailty of their friends, those who pursue love liberally pay kindnesses to them. Because they know they need kindnesses 
in light of their weaknesses. Love forgives and sacrifices and helps others in their weakness. Our time and energy and spiritual gifts have been given to us to serve others out of love. We've been given all that we've been given so that we might be people of patience that exhibit kindness again and again to our friends who are like us. With this in mind, Paul also speaks of the great promise that pursuing others in love brings. There's great promise in pursuing other people in love. There's great promise there. Drop down to verse 7. I want you to look at the beginning and end of verse 7. There's four things there. Look at 1 and 4 in verse 7. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. It's at the front and and, and back of that verse. It's not unlike what verse 4 says, right? If you're patient, what are you going to do? You're going to bear your friends. You're going to bear all things that's necessary. And you're going to endure things. You're going to endure the, the difficulties of your friends that they are experiencing. You're going to do that out of love. While you bear with others patiently and graciously walking with them, while you endure the hardships that perhaps even their failures have brought about, we read that love also in the middle there believes all things and hopes all things. While you're bearing your, the burdens of your friends, while you're enduring the difficulties that, that, that they are experiencing, there is also faith. There's also trust. There's, there's hope in it. And so Christians believe that all things are possible with Christ. God in His patience and kindness leads men to repentance. We have experienced that salvation. And so we know the great possibility, the great hope that's in Christ. Faith in Jesus transforms men from enemies of God awaiting His vengeance into sons of God, awaiting an inheritance of eternal blessing from His hand. So yes, Christians believe that all things are possible in Christ. And so we walk in the love of Christ as we minister to our friends. We believe that our love towards others is not in vain. It's not throwing away kindnesses. We hope in our Savior who empowers us to show his love to others and so extend his work through us. Believing all things and hoping all things, it's not bury your head in the sand naivete, but it's rather based in the promises of God in Christ. Love is everything when you understand what it is. And I would just ask you, do you love others by being patient with them? Do you? Would would people describe you as a a patient friend? Or or are you someone that just blows up and and gets easily frustrated with people and sees their, their friends in need as a nuisance? Are you quick to condemn other people? Do you love others by showing them, them kindnesses, by being gracious to them, by, by helping them, even when you don't think they deserve it? When you think of your time, 
and your energy. Who's, who, who, belong, who, who owns those things? Think about these things, so important. Well, the rest of this middle section calls out what love is not. It's, it's patient, it's kind, it bears all things, it believes and hopes all things, it endures all things, but it's also not some things. And that's what's in the middle of this middle section. To sum up, it's not self-focused, it's not self-exalting. We know how we act when we're all about ourselves, right? It's this list without the knots before them, right? I, I mean, those who are devoted to others, they don't envy what other people have. But when we're all about ourselves, that's precisely what we do. I want what you have and what I have, right? I'm, I'm envious. I'm jealous. What's more, when, when we love other people, we're not resentful of them. We're not, we, don't, we, don't treat them, we don't treat them rudely or inappropriately or, or dishonorably. We do those things when we're all about ourselves. We judge people quickly. We dishonor them. We ignore them. We, we treat them rudely. We, ignore, we, we, we can say very unkind things to them. When we love other people, we, we don't help them begrudgingly. We will, willingly and joyfully sacrifice and serve others. That's what love looks like. What's more, what's more, when we love other people, we want what's best for them. We want their best-case scenario. We don't demand our own way or, or cheer, cheer when others are wronged, and we certainly don't keep a record of being wronged by other people. It's, the, it's a matter of being not self-focused, but others-focused, and that's transformational. When we understand love like that, friends, when we understand that love is all about other people and not about ourselves, putting other people before our needs, their needs before our needs, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, love's everything. Love's everything. It's, 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 the, it's the course to follow for our lives. For those who live for others, who follow this more excellent way of love, they experience the joy of living in union with the Savior's heart. Jesus suffered willingly for his friends for the joy set before him. When we suffer, if you will, sacrifice for other people, we join in his heart. We are united to that love and we experience the joy of it. It, it becomes everything for us. It's a miserable road to walk in, in, in being irritated with other people and, and, and condemning them. Proverbs tells us it rots the bones. But oh, to join in, to join in with the Savior's heart. It's everything. Our life flows from the joy of Christ's love, which is what the Savior calls his church to do. Be, re be reminded of, of, these, of these words in John 15, friends. Jesus says, abide in my love. It's right in the middle of the, 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 the true vine chapter. 
Abide in my love. Listen carefully now. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, the Savior says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So I would just ask, do you struggle to put the interests of others before your own? If so, do you see the disconnect between that selfish approach and the, and the way of love of the Savior? Hear the call to abide in the love of the Savior so that your joy might be full. Do you tend to be jealous of the opportunities and blessings of others? Do you tend to be easily agitated by, by people in need? Turn from that bitter road and live in the power of Christ's love. Experience the preeminent joy that comes from joining the Savior in spending yourself for your friends. Love is everything in this life and the life to come. When you understand what love really is, you'll see that it's everything. Paul tries to explain that to us, and he does explain it to us. It lays the foundation, these words, for spiritual maturity and a full life of joy and meaning and success in Christ. We, too, have been given all that we need, friends, in Jesus. Yes, when you understand what love is, you see that it's everything. But, but you need to understand something else, and we have to press forward. And so now, now go to the top of the text, verses 1 through 3. And there, and there we will see that love is everything when you understand it's essential. To live the life God calls his people to. For the church to be unified and mature, for the glory of Christ to be put on display in this community, Christians must live their lives out of love for others. They must. It's essential. Following the way of love is of such value. Friends, listen now. Following the way of love is of such value that everything else apart from it is useless. That's what Paul says in these, in these verses, these first three verses. He says it three times, albeit in different words. Look at, look at I'm gonna, we're going to just kind of run through one through three real quickly. I'm not going to read all of the verse, but follow me. It starts, if I speak in tongues, and then later in the verse he says, if I speak in tongues, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, not at the crescendo of an orchestra piece. Just the crashing of metal. That's how pointless it is to, he, to have a gift and not employ love in the service of it. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers, he says some other things there too, but if I have prophetic powers but have not love, look at the end of the verse, I am what? Nothing. And, and what about verse 3? If I give away all I have, presumably to care for the poor, Perhaps Paul has Jesus' words there in mind. If I do all of that, that great sacrifice, I sell everything I have so that I might care for the needy, apart from love, I gain nothing. 
Speaking in tongues was a powerful gift to spread the gospel throughout the countless people groups around the Mediterranean world. The gift of knowing a language in an instant, can you imagine how effective your evangelism would be? Knowing different languages you've never previously studied miraculously, it was an ability the Spirit poured out initially at Pentecost, you may recall, for the widespread uh, uh, expansion of of, of the mission. But if one saw that gift as something to boast in, and the Corinthians did just that, if one employed this marvelous ability so that they would gain the attention and admiration of people, even this gift was so useless that they might as well have been banging pots and pans together for all the good it would do. What about the gift of prophecy? The gift of prophecy where, where God revealed his truth to somebody so that they might prophetically share that with someone. So important for establishing the church. I mean, think of the history of the prophets. I, I mean, Nathan spoke about the, about, the, uh, about the history of the prophets culminating in Jesus this morning in Sunday school class. So important, the gift of prophecy to the establishment of the church. And the gift of miraculous faith is included in, in verse 2 there. So, so Not faith of any kind now. This is a miraculous measure of faith that could accomplish great things for God, so critical throughout redemptive history. Even those who have received such wondrous gifts as these are nothing unless directed by the love of other people. Finally, even making enormous sacrifices, verse 3, which normally would be a demonstration of the Spirit's power in the church. When it's not governed by love, such acts are of no profit. Perhaps Paul has, has Jesus' words in mind, as, as I mentioned, from the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew 6, Jesus warned there that any religious practice, whether it's praying or fasting, and yes, even giving to the poor, performing acts of charity, any of these done to garner a reputation before men, to be seen of men, they have no eternal reward, no profit. Without love, no advantage. But Paul says, even more, says it even more strongly than that. He amps up all three of these hypotheticals. He uses hyperbole, wild exaggeration, to make his point that love is everything because it's essential for us to do anything of value. In verse 1, he doesn't just say loveless tongues are meaningless noise. He says that if his, if his spiritual gift of tongues was so exalted that he could even speak some angelic language, if he did so selfishly without the good of others motivating him, it was worthless. The greatest possible use of tongues in this exalted fashion, I speak even the language of heaven, whatever that is. It's absolutely useless unless he loves people. And that's the motivator for using that gift. So also in verse 2, Paul doesn't just say loveless prophecy is of no value. Remember, prophecy is God revealing spiritual truth and understanding to be shared with his people. Paul here imagines himself to have, did you see the language of verse 2? All mysteries and all knowledge revealed to him with complete understanding. 
Suffice it to say, no prophet has had that kind of knowledge. God alone possesses such understanding. But Paul says that even if it were possible for him to be granted such an incredible revelation, if he didn't act out of love, if he didn't use that revelation for the good of the church, it would be of no use. And so is the pattern in verse 3. Paul there says, not only might someone sell his possessions to care for the needy, but what if someone even martyred themselves to save their friends? Jesus even said that no greater love exists than to lay down your life for your friends. That's John 15, 13. But even if such an extraordinary sacrifice was made, that you laid down your very life for other people, but, but, but the doing of it was somehow motivated out of a desire to, to gain, some, some, some sort of personal gain, perhaps an attempt even to earn God's favor, whatever it was, if it wasn't motivated by the love of other people, if it was self-focused, it is of no advantage. Do you feel the weight of what Paul's saying here? It doesn't matter what gift you have. It doesn't matter what service you do. If you're doing it for you, it's pointless. If you want to do something of real value in the church, be motivated by loving others. Be motivated by the love of Jesus, the laying down of life for someone else, for the reason that you want to benefit other people. Love's essential, friends. And when you get that, you see that love's everything. Right? I mean, this is extraordinary, what, the, the, this, this walk that Paul's taken us by the hands through so that we might see that, that love is everything in this life and the life to come. To live life to its fullest for Christ is to pour your life out using your spiritual gifts and all that you are for the good of others. Understanding what love really is brings that understanding. So too does understanding the necessity of love to doing anything of value. But there's one more thing we need to understand to see that love is everything. It's found in the end of our text, verses 8 through 13. There you see love is everything when you understand it's eternal. You see, love is everything when you understand it's eternal. Look at those first three words in verse 8. Love never ends. We almost don't need any other verses. What a profound truth. Self-denying, sacrificial love for others, that kind of love never ends ends. Its effects gloriously reverberate into eternity. It's because God is love and recreates sinners to live out of that love. Look at verse, or, or hear, the, hear 1 John 4, 7 through 9. I love these verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
the father's denying himself. The, the, the fellowship of his son in sending him to die. In that, we see that love finds its ultimate source in God. The son's willingness to depart the wonders and joys of heaven to be crushed for sinners, it's here we see the origin of love. That's why love's everything. Its, its origins are eternal, the, the heart and mind of God, and its effects too are eternal. Fruit that lives on in the everlasting kingdom of God. Even in the... Friends, imagine the, 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 the songs around the throne. Even in the shouts of the angels and the songs of the redeemed. A chorus will be heard of self-denying, others-saving acts of the church. Now, it won't be praises of individual people in the church. That's not my point. The praises will be to Christ because he transformed those who loved only themselves into ambassadors of Christ's love for others. He gets all the credit And so there will be these choruses for all of eternity about Christ's love that was manifested through sinners like you and me. Love's eternal. As impressive impressive of gifts as the Spirit gives His people, particularly those miraculous gifts in the first century, they will not, none of the gifts, none of them will, will, will last forever. None of us will have those spiritual gifts forever. Verse 8 makes this very plain. Look at it. You have this pattern. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. Love never ends. Spiritual gifts will Love is everything in this life and the life to come. Spiritual gifts are not in the same league as the love of Christ. His love is eternal and is the foundation from which the church's gifts thrive. I'm not trying to say the spiritual gifts are of no value. I'm not saying that. But they, they're only of value, and they only have this eternal character, right, insofar as love fuels them. Gifts are temporary. They, they have a function here while we live in this fallen world. The Spirit has mercifully given them to us to serve one another while we're all here in our weakness. What's more, the benefits of spiritual gifts are not complete. Not only will they not last, but they're, they're incomplete. They're rather glimpses of the eternal. We, we see that like in verse 9 there. We know in part... And we prophesy in part. In this life, the Spirit gives us some knowledge of God's will. He gives us some understanding of His truth. Praise God. Thank, thank Him for that. Even under the ministry of the greatest prophets and apostles, though, God's people only comprehend some of His wisdom and plan. A part of it. This idea is further explained by two different analogies that Paul uses. He, he talks about behaving like a child in verse 11 and, and looking into a mirror in verse 12. He's just demonstrating this reality that 
that the knowledge, the benefits that we get from the gifts today is only in part. It's like we're children here. So we think like a child. We behave like a child. We, we make noises at inappropriate times like a child. Right? But when we grow up, when, when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, when our salvation is made complete, when our faith is adult, if you will, we won't need any of those partial things, for the perfect will have come. Jesus will have come and made all things plain. So too, the, the analogy of the mirror, we see things dimly or darkly, the King James has it. We, we, we have a vision that's indirect, it's not direct. The point is that the usefulness of spiritual gifts are, of course, a blessing, but they are, are not complete. And they will serve God's purposes, yes, until the eschaton, until the glorious return of our Savior. When Christ comes to gather up his people and deliver them to the eternal city to live with him face to face, verse 12, there will be no need for those gifts that predicted what is to come. There'll be no need for those gifts that, that, that predicted or rather gave us the knowledge of how to live until Jesus returns. Because we'll be with him in his presence. Look at verse 12 there. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We can never fully understand the mind of God, of course. He's the omniscient creator, and we are his creatures, finite. But when we enter into his presence at the end of the age, we will grow into perfect maturity. We will see and understand everything he has for the children he loves. What we saw partially, what we understood in some fashion, we will be made gloriously complete in our understanding on that day as much as a creature can have. Do you struggle with not knowing why God is doing what he's doing in your life? Do you do that? Why? Why are you doing that, God? Are you asking those questions? Do you worry about tomorrow or fear talking about your faith because you don't know all the answers? Friends, enjoy the benefits of the gifts of teaching and understanding that the Spirit has given the church. There are many. Enjoy the merciful understanding that he has provided for you. While it's only partial understanding, rejoice at the fullness that's coming when you behold your Savior. Live in the good of the gifts now, but don't see them as the end-all, be-all. For Christ is coming. Well, finally, we come to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. You know, there's an argument that faith and hope will no longer be around once we're in heaven. What are we waiting for, right? And yet, we're going to really live in heaven. You know, we're, we're, we're still creatures. We're still going to be subject to time. We're still going to be working today and something else is coming tomorrow. It won't be, it won't be marked by sin anymore, but there'll still be some, some reliant, uh, not some, we'll still be completely relying on God, trusting in him for our existence and blessing. And looking forward in hope for what's coming. 
in the new age, we will still have that sort of creatureliness to us, glorified as we will be. We'll live looking in some sense to the days that will stretch out before us to eternity. Trusting God fully and hoping in Him completely. But even at that, love is far greater. Love is far greater. Because love is the foundation and goal of faith and hope. And so it is the foundation and goal of spiritual gifts in the church. You think that serving with your gifts has no real value, friends? Pray God gives you love for others. Real, sacrificial, others-focused devotion so that you will experience the joy of knowing your work is valuable but even has eternal value. What's love got to do with it? Well, love's everything. Love's everything in this life and in the life to come. We see this when we grasp what love is, when we grasp that love is essential, and when we grasp that love is eternal. I trust that's a benefit to you. May you pursue the gifts the Spirit gives and use them for the common good. Not hoard them for yourself, not not be motivated by self-glory, but just so that others might be helped. And may you pursue the more excellent way of love that Christ has shown us. Oh, friends, let this word soak into you. Take a a few moments. Meditate on these truths.